That's the music of Joe Lovano, Joe Lovano Quartet, with Hank Jones, George Mraz, and Louis Nash, live at Newport in 2005 from the album Classic on Blue Note Records. And uh, my name is Dave Douglas, and this is the A Noise from the Deep Greenleaf Music Podcast. We're talking to Joe Lovano today at the Jazz Loft in Stony Brook, New York, where we're playing with sound prints in this beautiful jazz museum. We'll be listening to music by Joe and various artists and talking about the music today. Thanks for listening. You can get all 40 episodes of the podcast for free at Greenleaf Music or at iTunes. If you dig the show, please leave us a message. Leave us a comment at iTunes. It helps people find us. And you can also email me directly and the address is podcast at greenleafmusic.com. Any suggestions or thoughts or follow-ups or um, angry tweets, uh, it's all welcome here at Greenleaf Music. So uh, thanks for listening. So we'll go to the conversation with Joe Lovano. Hi, Hi Joe. Dave. Hi, Dave. Thanks Hi. for inviting me. Man. Yeah. Well, Look at that. We came together right there. <laughs> Our rhythm, and we're in sync. <laughs> Yeah, well, this we played a concert in this room last night, and we're playing nearby tonight. And uh, I was your student, as you know, and now we have this band together, so I'm very grateful for that. Well, Dave, you know, I think, like, uh, we each study with each other, man, along the way, and it's just been inspiring to play with you and uh, huh. create this band, Sound Prince, that we've been doing over the last several years. These last couple of weeks have been really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of learning and out of respect for our elders, um, listeners to this podcast will know that Marietta Drummond told some stories about Hank Jones on mm. a recent episode. Oh, great. And right. uh, you're playing, you played quite a bit with Hank. You had a long relationship with him. Um, is there anything special about his approach that you would remark on? Well, you know, Hank was all about the love and passion of the music and uh, played from his heart and soul every moment and drew from his experiences um, throughout his lifetime, you know, his inspirations. And by the time I started to play with him, he was in his early 80s, you know. Mm. This particular recording live at Newport uh, is really the fifth recording that Hank participated with me. And uh, we had just come back from a European tour with this quartet, with George Moraz and Louis Nash on drums. But three of the quartet recordings had Paul Motion on drums mm. and um, George on bass. Um, I'm All For You, uh, Joyous Encounter, which had just been released before our tour, mm -hmm. uh, which this, this tune that we just listened to um, Bird's Eye View, the original uh, recording of that was from Joyous Encounter. And this live version was really um, a performance of interpretation, you know? Mm. Each time we played through any of the tunes that we were playing to, through uh, was an experience. And uh, the energy of the, the, the feeling and the energy of the space we were playing and also just the, uh, the maturity of um, realizing the material mm -hmm. and trying to reshape it each time, you know. Uh, just the way I played the theme on this particular uh, performance of Bird's Eye View had a real different kind of attitude and approach mm -hmm. from the experience of touring together and playing that piece, which is uh, kind of based on confirmation 
but yeah. has a different bridge and it resolves in different keys within. Well, it seems to have uh, some uh, John Coltrane type resolutions going right, on. Right, it's a combination of Charlie Parker and Coltrane's mm -hmm. harmonic ideas that I tried to put together. And uh, I did it on this tune, Confirmation, because uh, Hank played Confirmation with Charlie Parker on a really great quartet recording. Hmm. So I wanted to play through those harmonies, but in a different kind of way. And Hank was really inspired to to play this piece, and it was fun. Hmm. It was fun. Do you feel like Hank also adapted in every performance? Like his approach was different based on what you said. You said love and passion. He was a real free player. Mm -hmm. You know, not mm -hmm. you know, not free in a sense of like uh, what people think of uh, free jazz or something, but jazz free, unencumbered by yeah. patterns and and and, and a style, one mm -hmm. style or another. He was just a very expressive improviser and mm -hmm. really reacted to who he played with. And, and you could hear, you know, even at his age, at 86 on this session, he's playing with equal weight with Lewis Nash and myself and George, and mm -hmm. he's leading and following within the music all the time, you know. Um, also, just my whole experience with the Jones family, yeah. playing with Elvin... Uh, Thad, you played with lot. Thad too, right? and with Thad, and uh, I was a part of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band, and uh, played under Thad's direction only a few times, subbing on the band. Mm -hmm. I joined the band 1980, right when he moved to Copenhagen, mm -hmm. and Bob Brookmeyer came in mm -hmm. and um, was helping Mel kind of reestablish a, a, a sound uh, for the future coming from the rich, incredible book of music from Thad and Brookmeyer, mm -hmm. the early recordings, the early charts. Mm -hmm. But just playing Thad's music, I was on the band from 1980 to 91, hmm. and just playing his music every week uh, taught me so much about phrasing and about composition and well, I was orchestration. Ask you, you know? I mean, uh, pivoting from, from Hank Jones, who... You know, as you say, you know, he recorded that confirmation with Charlie Parker in, in probably the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, mm -hmm. kept mm -hmm. learning. And I wanted to ask you, do you feel like as a musician, you've learned more from being on the bandstand or from being in the practice room? Well, you know, I think the practice room gives you um, those intimate moments trying to get yourself together on your instrument mm -hmm. and developing uh, a way of playing your horn, you know. And you're, you're studying music and you're studying tunes and things. But once, once you get on the bandstand and you start to play in this amazing multi-generational world of jazz and the multicultural uh, influences that are happening on the bandstand at the moment, you know, um, and with also w with the maturity of, of uh, musicians around you. Sometimes some young cats are very mature in the music and mm -hmm. on their horns, you know, but, but the, that whole um, process, mm -hmm. I think you learn every time you uh, are in those situations even more. And then that takes you into the practice room mm -hmm. a different way. Right, right. And for me, like growing up around Cleveland and my dad who played saxophone and was one of the leading players around town, I would mm -hmm. say, in his time, you know, in, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the, in the late 40s and 50s, he heard Charlie Parker, played a jam session with Coltrane and... Uh, was in the room with Lester Young and, mm -hmm. and all the cats that would come through Cleveland. He brought all those those things to me, you know, hmm. in his record collection mm -hmm. and in his uh, enthusiasm about being in the room with people, yeah. you know. But for you, that's almost like a hybrid experience between bandstand and practice room. Because yeah. Because it was real. It was in real. real life. And, and it started for me... In my teenage years, when I was starting to learn the repertoire mm -hmm. of tunes that my dad was playing, yeah. you know, and he came up in that whole Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie mm -hmm. songbook, yeah. as well as the the famous jazz standards. So I was hearing him and and hearing how every time he played through something, it was different somehow. He played with a beautiful interpretation of things, you know. Hmm. And that kind of gave me freedom to do, try to do that 
uh, even when I was learning specifically what what I was playing, you know, it was how to try to play it. So that that aspect um, has stayed with me all these years, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I try to execute that in every ensemble that I'm in, you know. And you've been in a lot of ensembles. You've been in like so many situations through the years. Is there any one? Yeah, maybe that's too hard of a question, but you know, would you be able to point to a playing situation that you were in where maybe you learned the most, where you know that was huge for you formationally? Well, you know, early on, I guess you know, in your foundations, the early things that you do stay with you, you know, and some of the. So would, would you say? You know, some of the first groups that I played with, like uh, with Dr. Lonnie Smith and mm -hmm. Brother Jack McDuff, mm -hmm. prior to moving to New York, you know, mm -hmm. in mid-70s, 74 and 75, those years, touring, Woody playing. Woody Herman was that Well, then, then Woody came next, uh -huh. you know. But those organ groups and playing through what they call the Chitlin Circuit in, in uh, the States in the Midwest, mm. um, playing for people, in these real soulful clubs with uh, with some some bands that really told some stories mm -hmm. you know in the music uh, those things like really were a strong foundation for me and then moving to new york and and getting the gig with the woody herman band during his 40th year moment 1976 mm. uh, i joined the band and there was a concert at carnegie hall celebrating that it was recorded on rca and i had a chance to to meet and to play with stan mm -hmm. getz and zoo mm -hmm. sims and al Cohn and mm -hmm. jimmy jufri flip phillips wow. uh the condoli brothers you know that must have been uh... man it was amazing to be, to be there to play my part on early autumn standing next to stan getz and him playing lead and blending with him and trying to like uh, support uh, the, the the ensemble sound. That's a lot of learning. It was amazing. You know, I was 23 so at the time. So many aspects, right? Yeah, and that, I, I had prepared for that moment, but that sent me back to the woodshed, you know, right. yeah. <laughs> also. So it's, yeah. this, it's this process that kind of goes back and forth. Uh, and through the years, through the years that's happened quite a few times you know and it's still happening today you know playing with you man is uh <laughs> is really a, a beautiful exchange of ideas you know and you know when i say go back to the woodshed you know what do, what do you mean you know what do you how do you practice man i i vibrate on tonalities and uh try to feel what i'm playing and and uh in in the execution of it in a dynamic way. Do you, when you say tonalities, you don't mean key centers. You mean like sonic, element, well, like the sound of kind of both, or, kind uh -huh. of both. You know, intervals, mm. uh, tonal centers, mm -hmm. but just uh, but just vibrating on tones throughout the, your range, your mm -hmm. your personal range. You know, and how you feel the air and the way you breathe through the, through the your horn. But also breathing with others on a bandstand and feeling that, and uh, right, I feel our communication has really uh, has grown through the years. Mm -hmm. But it started mm -hmm. in the '80s when uh, we mm -hmm. first met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's that kind of practicing. It's really an, an internal thing. It's almost even not playing the notes. It's like closing your eyes and thinking about how it feels to play that music and how you could. Prove your connection to the feeling yeah, that's going a, on. It's a certain meditation. It's almost like you're not practicing. You're just like vibrating, you know, with the with your instrument and uh, wow, in the feeling of the sound, you know. Okay, well, I was going to play this track from your band Us Five that's called Journey Within. So mm. this seems like as good a time as any. Oh, great! Uh, this was a special tune. Uh, with Lionel Lewecki mm -hmm. on guitar and uh, Francisco Mela on drums and Otis Brown on drums. And it's a piece I wrote really influenced by my uh, 30 years playing with Paul Motion and Bill mm -hmm. Frizzell. 
we started to play together in 1981 until Paul's passing in 2011. And I, I wrote this piece uh, feeling uh, the inspiration of uh, that collaboration. And uh, I also it was one of the first recordings on the G mezzo soprano saxophone also. Yeah. So it had a real different sound and color mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with guitar. And uh, it was a real fresh feeling when we did this piece in the studio. Journey Within, Joe Lovano. Um, beautiful piece. Uh, I want to ask you about um, what I would think, I think is something that I think is probably important for you, which is like the importance of place. Like you mentioned Cleveland, and I know how formative and huge that, you know, that's a part of who you are in a huge way. When I met you, you had this loft on 23rd Street by Sixth Avenue that was like a hub for sessions and you know you had so many instruments in there and I would come by and we'd play and everybody was coming by and you had that place for a long time so how how important was the loft for you and you you, you it was there until what year in, in the 90s it, it, yeah uh I had the loft from like around 1978 or so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was still on the Woody Herman band at the time mm. when I when I acquired that space. Um, I went there prior to that. Kenny Warner used to have my loft. That same like, place. That on same 23rd. space. Yeah, it was uh, 23rd and 7th. Mm. And it was a second floor above a Blarney Stone. Mm -hmm. And Kenny had that spot for a little while in like 1975 or so. And I used to stay there with him. Mm -hmm. Then he moved to Brooklyn, and Joe LaBarbera and Harold Danko took over the loft. They were sharing the loft. Now, Harold had been on Woody Herman's band, and so had Joe. And I knew Joe and his brother, Pat LaBarbera, a great saxophone player, mm -hmm. and John LaBarbera, their other brother, like an arranger. And I, I knew those cats, and... Uh, I remember the day I, I was in New York with Woody. We had the day off, and I went there for a jam session to play with Harold and Joe. And during the session, Joe blurts out that he just got engaged and he was going to move out of the loft if I knew anybody that might be interested in buy, buying into it. You had mm -hmm. to pay like a key deposit. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we played another tune. And I'm looking around his face, and I said, wow, no kidding. So uh, I said, man, I'll take it. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about 
what that key deposit was going to be. And um, I moved in with Harold. But I stayed on Woody's band maybe another six months or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I had my space in New York. So then I gave notice to Woody and left at the beginning of 1979 mm -hmm. and had my spot. Mm -hmm. I could play with drummers till midnight. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was like 1,800 square foot space. And I was there till the late 90s, over 20 years. Mm -hmm. Then there was a fire in the building, in the electrical, and uh, that kind of changed the whole scene there. It turned into a well, commercial space. It's a terrible story. I mean, I, yeah. you, meant you lost everything. I lost, I lost a lot of stuff. Instruments, yeah. and gongs, and sheet music. Yeah, and piano. It was really... And, uh, yeah, you, to go through fire was really rough, you know. Yeah. But luckily, my wife Judy and I didn't have to escape the fire. She mm -hmm. was, she was staying out of town in this little country pad that we had uh, up in the woods that we weren't really living, but we were. We would go on weekends and stuff. And I was on tour with Paul Motion and, and Bill. Mm. We were in Norway uh, when she called me and told me about the fire, you know. Mm. But anyway. Uh, that was, you know, of course it's devastating. You go through stuff like that, but it turned out to be a cleansing in a way also. But uh, the whole period at the Loft was amazing throughout all the 80s and 90s, and I played with everybody in my life um, in that space. Wow. Like rehearsals, uh, Charlie Hayden, and with Tom Harrell, and Paul Motion, and uh, every, every little project and recording session that I was involved with, we rehearsed at my loft for a lot of dates and things yeah. through the, through those years, and it was just a beautiful spot to um, create music and and uh, made me even realize more about all these relationships that you have mm -hmm. that shape your whole life, you know, and to have a well, space. Well, and the music too, wouldn't you say? That, yeah, that those... for for sure. For, the music comes together because every day there would be moments throughout the day where I would play duets and trios and and uh, larger ensemble sessions. Yeah. So throughout one day, there might be three or four different moments with different people and rehearsing different music or just improvising free a lot. And, yeah. and creating music within the, the the community that you live in, you know, especially in New York. And well, that, I mean, I was blessed to get a taste of that coming by and playing there yeah. at the loft with a few different people. And right. uh, those were I some know, great man. sessions. And you played drums very often, which was fantastic. Yeah, and, uh, to get into all these different instruments and to, yeah. to be, uh, to develop a, a free flowing approach about creating music. Did you ever think about making a performance space out of that loft? You know, at the moment after the fire, that could have happened. After the fire? Maybe after I the see, fire. Like renovate it. When, and, and have it be more of a commercial space. And, uh -huh. But while we were living there, I never really um, thought about opening that up to the to the public somehow i wanted to keep it a little close mm -hmm. you know and have it be i mean more, it still was more intimate you know parts of that era was what they would call the loft era where sam mm -hmm. rivers had his space and and lots of different people you know uh, well, um, uh, um studio whiz yeah and, like when i moved uh, to new york in the 70s that was the scene the studio rivby mm -hmm. sam rivers down on bond street and rashid ali's uh place Ali's Alley mm -hmm. uh, I used to go often you know but but a lot of cats had lofts like Dave Liebman and Mike Brecker and mm -hmm. uh, in in Chelsea you know around where I lived and uh, my place turned out to be one of the last lofts that was happening because of the loss board jurisdiction and things yeah. changed like the laws changed yeah and my place was protected on 23rd Street and 7th Avenue South, for some mm -hmm. reason I was protected and covered by the Loft Commission, mm -hmm. uh, where people more east, Lofts more east of 7th Avenue were not, you know? Wow. So I was lucky in that. And, um, and there were some clubs right in that little block, right? Yeah. Pats in Chelsea, I used Pats to see you come down. There. 
Right. The Angry Squire. Angry Squire had, uh, for years, just Friday and Saturday nights, but they Mm -hmm. had revolving trios with Barry Harris and Albert Daly and all kind of amazing pianists, Jackie Byard. And I used to go and sit in there a lot and Hmm. hear folks. And the Star Cafe was uh, across 7th Avenue where Junior Junior Cook Cook. and all kinds of uh, folks would be, Bill Hardman. and uh, I was in one of the first groups that played at the star on a sunday hmm. and it was a real funny funky joint you know with a pool table and a big light over the table and you would set up like next to this pool table it was kind Sometimes of bizarre the greatest music yeah. is made in the most modest but there was a place there <laughs> to play and once junior cook started coming and, and digging the music and stuff he started playing in there on weekends, mm-hmm. and it was amazing to go there and to hang out with Junior Cook, one of mm-hmm. the great saxophone players in yeah. jazz, you know, and one of the, the, the most generous people also with the younger cats on the scene. He would always like invite people to sit in and uh, was a real mentor for a lot of folks in, in New York during mm-hmm. that time, in the late 70s, early yeah. 80s, you know. Wow. So as much as you've played in all these incredible settings around pool tables and in lofts and <laughs> <laughs> corner taverns corner of the taverns world. right but uh you also have made some landmark recordings with people like Gunther Schuler and and you know been involved mm-hmm. in what might be described as ooh, classical jazz crossover, even though I hate the term but for lack of a better word let's say more purely notated you know conducted music in the studio mm-hmm. which is a maybe demanding more like reading and vigor and notation and uh do you see a difference between i don't you know some people say high art versus low art mm-hmm. and some people mm-hmm. say you know classical versus jazz let's just say between you know um a really loose session playing tunes as compared to a more arranged, more structured, structured situations. Well, you know, I I think like as you develop as an improviser, it it kind of becomes one thing when you're improvising in a contemporary way and trying to feed off the ideas around you. Uh, It happens organically when there's no written music in a certain way and you're just following the sound and the ideas around you, but when you're interpreting something that is more structured and more um, outlined in form and uh, melodies and, and with a conductor, mm-hmm. uh, my experience in that for my sessions, let's say with Gunther Schuller, uh, this recording Rush Hour, where he really notated and was very specific about so many things, but still left me a lot of space to be myself within that. And he really wrote for me. Uh, Well, he had 100% uh, confidence. There was a lot of trust, yeah. Yeah. And the way we laid it down, too, with no overdubs and things. I Mm. I was in a booth following his conducting along with the orchestras and the in there's different moments with strings and there's moments with a woodwind ensemble with percussion and uh, each piece had its own atmosphere and and flavors within it uh that he gave me to explore yeah you yeah. know and it was an amazing experience and that particular those days we recorded, we recorded for two days. I was playing at Bradley's those nights with John Hicks. Hmm. And uh, I think Walter Booker might have been playing bass. And uh, so I would record with Gunther during the day. And then the Bradley's, you played till three in the morning. Yeah, it was four sets, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was. Something like that. Yeah, well, three sets starting late. Like, right. You played at, uh, I don't know, 10, midnight, one. Two. Anyway, it was late. I was playing at night and going and and Gunther came down to hear us too. He was there at Bradley's. So that that week was like an amazing. um, Well, those days were just like amazing moments of improvisation and with Hicks 
we were playing some of his music mm -hmm. and some standard tunes and just calling things, you know, and very playing real free, but in a in a real more straight ahead way, let's say. Mm -hmm. And during the day, I was recording with Gunther with this really adventurous, amazing um, music that mm -hmm. he had done orchestrations for Mingus piece and Hornet and Thelonious and Ellington as well as some of his mm -hmm. original compositions for the session. And it was really challenging uh, to execute my part within the orchestra moments with his conducting. But then he let me take it and um, bring it into uh, some other places, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, Well, he probably trusted that you would bring it into the places that he... He was guided that it should go. Well, he was guiding. He was yeah. guiding me for sure, and mm -hmm. uh, we had known each other for some time before that. Yeah. Like I met in the early '70s when I attended Berkeley College of Music. Gunther was uh, president of uh, New England at mm -hmm. the time, and I started to play with his son Ed Schuler, mm -hmm. who was featured on bass on this recording, also with George Schuler, his other son, on drums. Mm -hmm. Uh, anyway, playing with Eddie in the early 70s and going to play at New England in some jam sessions, Gunther would come and sit and listen to us play. And that's when we first met, and he first uh, heard me, you know? Wow. And that was, uh, that was in the early 70s, and this recording, Rush Hour, was in, like 1994 or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And through those years, I had done other projects with him, you know? And he, he was saw a stickler the on the sessions. I mean, I was oh, on some sessions. Oh with yeah, him he, where... he was amazing. And to mix to mix something with him, uh -huh. he knew he could hear if the yeah. clarinet part, if he was if he was playing mezzo forte, but he was too far away from the mm. the mic. Mm -hmm. In mixing with Gunther, I learned so much about just how you hear because in the room without headphones, he's hearing everything yeah. the way it's. Right, it's supposed to be played. Yeah, but then in the mixing, he could tell if someone was too close to the mic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well, he also, adjusting uh, like that. You know? I was on a session with him, and uh, the part called for a straight mute, and I had my straight mute. It was a metal straight mute, and he stops the orchestra and he says, "David, do you have a wooden straight mute?" And I, <laughs> I didn't have a wooden straight mute. It was just like a big, heavy. We figured it out. I ended up. Putting uh, and this was actually John Clark, the French horn player, suggested mm -hmm. this. He said, he, use the, he said, use the, the the metal straight mute, but put a handkerchief over it. It'll sound like a wood straight mute. Right. And it, it did. <laughs> Gunther was happy. We moved on. <laughs> so I was going to play this track from mm. uh, your album, Streams of Expression, which is with Gunther. Um, and uh, part of the album is The Birth of the Cool Suite, some right. new arrangements, but I was going to play just this track that's called cool great from streams it, of expression this is my uh my original composition and, and orchestration is um, that right yeah this this recording um gunther so did he did the birth of the cool suite yeah which uh he combined he played on the original birth of the cool yeah on french horn and uh so we chose i had a commission from the monterey festival actually mm -hmm. to uh in commemoration of one of miles's celebration concerts and uh i gave the, the commission to gunther to, to write something for me for my nonette beautiful so we chose moon dreams move and boplicity and he put them together in a suite with intros and, and mm -hmm. interludes and uh, different moments it's about an 18 20 minute um piece mm -hmm. combining those three tunes so then i I framed it with uh, my my original uh, suite, Streams of Expression, mm -hmm. and uh, Cool is part of my my suite. Great, and uh, it was really fun to work with Gunther on this recording because he he just he contributed maybe one third of the of the date, and I did the other two thirds. Uh, like, kind was of he framing. conducting on this piece on your yes. suite? Yes, yeah. on his suite. Not no, on yours. No, no, my suite I did as no another conductor. another session. I conducted that, and we played Sounds, in the studio. It's gorgeous. It uh, came together really nice, and it features everybody uh, in my ensemble in a real special way. Beautiful. Know. 
All right, we'll put the personnel up on the website. So if you're Great. curious, you go check it out. This is uh, Cool from Streams of Expression, Joe Lovano. That's cool, Joe Lovano's piece and his orchestration and his band and uh, like I said, the personnel for that is on the is listed on the website if you if you want to get it. There's a lot of great people, great playing. Um, Joe, uh, I you know you invited me to be on one of your records years ago called uh, uh, Flights of Fancy Trio Fascination, and boy, I hadn't heard it in forever. And uh, I put some on the other day, and I was like, wow, I don't even remember that. You know, it was <laughs> you and me and Mark Dresser. Yeah, for the, that trio. the amazing thing on the session for me, uh, and something that I've always thought is amazing about your playing, is how you switch from different instruments in different keys. 
like in the course of a night, certain bands I'll go see you and you're playing a horn that's in B flat, of course, and then the next one you're playing C melody, and then you're playing a G mezzo, and then you're playing an E flat alto clarinet. And so I just don't know how your brain makes those shifts. <laughs> well, do you not think about it, or do you... You know, I, th I think throughout my lifetime, just just like uh, playing and... and uh, exploring these different instruments in the woodwind family started to become like a real natural thing. Uh, I think like a, a lot of wood flutes that I've collected through the years, traveling around the world, non-chromatic instruments, all are in different keys and you have to figure out how to do half steps and different uh, different fingerings, you know, on each each wood flute is, another, is a whole world, mm -hmm. you know. In, in itself, uh, that has really helped me and given me confidence to to do that on these instruments, like you're saying, the alto clarinet or the G mezzo soprano. Uh, finding the the tone and the approach on each horn uh, that becomes personal. Not trying to to play one to make it sound or feel like. The tenor or something then mm -hmm. the tenor saxophone is really my home bass instrument i feel but all these other colors and and um vibrations that happen in these other instruments all influence the way i play tenor and uh and then that goes the other way also hmm. uh, my my tenor approach goes into those instruments but i think they come into the tenor even more and that gives my tenor approach like a real hmm. uh, more dynamic range in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel that anyway. Uh, but also maybe your ability to play through different tonalities and just shift through chord changes in unusual ways might be also helped by the fact that you have played all that music in all those different in, keys in those on other keys. instruments. For sure, that all really comes into your approach because your sound is about your approach, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and and the, the I think the the one thing that uh, helps is that I write from each instrument. So if I'm playing the G mezzo, I'm I write for that range of that horn and that the key that it's in. I don't I don't really write in concert a lot. I'll write on the in the key of the instrument hmm. to really feel the the to feel how it how what, it is what is happening yeah what's on happening the physical instrument on the instrument yeah. right wow so the tunes I would write for the alto clarinet I would really have that instrument in my hand and feeling th those intervals and those uh, tones mm -hmm. you know and I think that's helped me have a natural flow in whatever piece I'm doing you know. Or working on, you know. So, do you ever find yourself like, let's say, you wrote a piece on the alto clarinet, in, in it's in E flat, right? E flat, yeah. Uh, and then you're on a tour, and you suddenly decide, oh, you know what? I'm going to play this on the tenor sax. On uh, the tenor, right? Well, then, yeah, then you so have you to gotta learn it in a new key. You have to learn in a new key, and sometimes it doesn't the work the of same. The song changes, changes, and and also just the 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 way you feels on the instrument changes. So. Uh, yeah, you have to be free and kind of be able to adjust like that. So you, know? you but that you, hasn't uh, happened. That hasn't happened so often. I usually yeah, uh, yeah. would have that instrument with me, or I play some other. Material, well, I've noticed in our know? band that you know you're you're primarily using the tenor sax and the the G mezzo soprano, and right. then once a tune settles into a particular instrument, or vice versa, that it pretty much stays there that that becomes the sound of the song The sound itself. of that piece, yeah. yeah. It's been fun bringing the mezzo in and playing with you, Dave, and blending in a different way. There's a different yeah. attitude in, in our yeah. uh, our approach together when I'm playing on the mezzo. And that's a new instrument for me. I had that made uh, in Copenhagen. Peter Jessen, this incredible craftsman, made that horn, and I've had it since 2010. Mm -hmm. So it's a new instrument for me, and... Uh, I'm just starting to really find the right way uh, to be expressive on it. 
you know, in its range. Sounds like you found range. it to me. Well, in its range, you know. Well, going back, like, you, I think you, you credit Joe Allard as being an important teacher for you, right? Or, or Well, I studied out of some Joe Allard uh, books. You didn't study with him directly I never studied Berkeley. with him oh, directly. Okay. I studied with Joe Viola oh. and Andy McKee and uh, um, John Laporta. Mm-hmm. But never with Joe Allard. But I, I you had those books. I you had, had these, me working out of the Joe Allard. I had when this I was in, your student, Joe. Well, you know <laughs> that it, it was called Advanced Rhythms. Yes. And I found that book when I was really young in Cleveland. Wow. And it was it was a, an amazing book about interpretation with harmonies and like twelve bar, sixteen bar little structures and yeah. melodies. Yeah. And it was a book about rhythm where you would play these syncopations, these written melodic syncopation uh, phrases, but then you would go back and play through the harmonies and create your own interpretations of those yeah. rhythms. That's that's the approach I took. Well, the approach you out took of the book, and gave you know? to me is something that's stayed with me and that I oh, wow. went on to, you know, I mean, those exercises, well... I guess you could call them melodies or um, etudes from yeah, the Joe Allard right, book. Because right. they didn't rhythms. feel like exercises. But then That's what I, loved I was about working it. out of the atonal sight singing book, Modus Novus. Mm. And I mm. started doing the same thing that you had had me doing on that Joe Allard material. Mm -hmm. So in other mm -hmm. words, taking these unusual shapes and phrase mm -hmm. lengths and then improvising with them and mm -hmm. working through learning structures and forms in this way that was very... Uh, well, unusual, but also, you know, demanding. There, there wasn't yeah, you, a huge structure to hang your ideas on. Right. It was kind of like focus. there's just this little yeah. thing, and you right. got to pay attention or it's going to slip away from you. I, I, you know, looking back at it now, it really, like, gave me a lot of ideas in my whole uh, approach about composing and putting ideas together in a composition, you know, and uh, having it have uh, a lot of flexibility to to grow from the first seed of the idea of a composition, you know? Mm. Yeah, that, that uh, I don't know if I would, if we would have really studied with Joe Allard out of that book, how he would have yeah. had yeah, the sure. approach, but, but. Well, but sometimes somebody points in a direction and you misunderstand what they mean and then you end up yeah. learning a whole thing that was already within you but given this new direction yeah. and i remember when I, when I got that book and and brought it home down my basement and i was studying with my dad and and his approach about just learning songs and playing in keys and things when i found that book and started practicing out of that he started looking at it too hmm. and started practicing out of there you know my dad was real curious about a lot of things man i remember sending him a john coltrane transcription book and when I was up in Boston and I came home for Christmas and he was like playing giant steps and locomotion. He was playing all these Coltrane solos wow. down the basement when I came home. Wow. He like, uh, that's so he great. had a, yeah, he had a beautiful love to play yeah. and would practice and, and really practice mm -hmm. things. And that, that really helped, helped me when I was a kid, just hearing that, him do that. Yeah. All of that work that you're talking about comes this, well, the counterpoint in your writing but also the improvised counterpoint that mm -hmm. we do mm -hmm. that yeah. it's a little unusual, man. You know, you're not mm -hmm. asked to do that every day. Right. And you right. develop a relationship of creating melodies together with someone that are based on a composition. Right. But that are only it would be you'd be hard pressed to analyze and say how it you know, maybe it's the intervals, maybe it's the feeling of the piece. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we did that trio thing with Mark Dresser, that, it's very much like that. And you're playing the E flat alto clarinet. Oh, yeah. And, and it's this piece, Amber. Um, and I'll just play a little bit of that.
You know, this, this recording was uh, volume two of a trio of fascination. Volume one was with Dave Holland and Elvin Jones, mm. where I wrote all the tunes for that session. And uh, Bruce Lundvall and folks at Blue Note were really uh, taken by that. And I proposed to do a volume two with four different trios. And uh, I remember I was, it was like a stretch, you know, but Bruce was like into hearing things that he never heard before. And it intrigued him, the combinations that came together for this date. Which one was with Toots Thielman and Kenny Warner as a yeah. trio. One was with Joey Barron and Billy, Billy Drews on uh, Woodwinds. Uh, and my working trio at the time, coming off of the trio fascination with Elvin, was with Idris Mohammed and Cameron Brown on bass. Mm -hmm. So the fourth trio with you and Mark uh, was really a, a fun exchange of ideas because I played some different horns and mm -hmm. I played some drums also. Mm -hmm. it, it left a left a moment for me to play some drums with you. Uh, since we had done that yeah. and the piece that i wrote for that was called 206 which was my address mm. of my loft mm -hmm. and uh it had like some roots there that, that was really uh fun to explore mm -hmm. wow there's a spiritual element to your music and you talk mm -hmm. about the spirits and spirituality mm -hmm. and it's hard to talk about, but it seems like maybe the most important element. I think it is an important element, it's, you know, because you're inspired by uh, the spirits of the masters that you've studied and, and you feel their presence all the time, you know, uh, and current masters that are with us mm -hmm. also. But just, but the spirits within the library of the music that we live in uh, really inspire me. And, uh, you know, because you're in the audience for a long time with all, your, all the people you love. But then they all of a sudden they're in your audience at some point. And that, that, uh, that's a spiritual thing that happens, man. And uh, if you let that come into your approach about creating music, it's always new music all the time. You think about how to de deepen that connection to the spirit in, in the music with a band or with, uh, or maybe not so much in your own playing, but like the overall sound of the music that you're putting yeah. out. Well, you know, it's, it, it's more feeling the breath, I think, and really hmm. in the breathing and trying to, to feel how each other's breathing together. For me, that relaxes me and it puts me in a more of a meditation into the piece. And I can, I can focus on the sound that's happening at the moment and try to be free on my horn to, uh, uh, to not just run around your instrument, but to play with an intention in your phrasing, you know? So the breathing is, is really uh, something for me that helps me try to realize that space you know yeah so but it sounds like the combination of everything we've been talking about because it's the, the, the breathing allows you know with, with all the experience you have and all the practicing and all the sessions and all mm -hmm. the stories with different musicians in your life and mm -hmm. meeting your heroes and being out there playing night after night Without all of that, the breathing, I mean, the breathing is what opens you up to allow all of that into the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it does. Say. And it also feeling the space that you're in mm. and, uh, and, and the, in the room or, or, you know, that particular moment, the, the congregation of folks that are playing, whether you're in a larger ensemble or in more intimate duets, you know, to feel that it's a real ensemble collaboration. Yeah. And uh, that whole idea of the congregation creating this uh, feeling on stage is uh, exciting, man. And it's, uh, it's, you can't really 
talk about how to do that. It just has to. Yeah, but you has to happen. It's yeah. such an incredible quality to to the, what you bring and the way that you do that. Do you ever feel like you have to make an extra effort to bring that to the moment? Sometimes, yeah, because sometimes cats aren't focused in a, like the way you might be, you know. But I I, I think you have by your calmness and uh mm. attitude that that uh that can transcend some of those things and and tie tie things together somehow if you go up there with a real nervous approach then everyone around you is going to be nervous too somehow you know so i try to be real calm and um and and, and put well, you're that, also put that kind of feeling out there you know I'm laughing because it's like having gone on stage with you now so many times, it's like from the downbeat, you're just there and there's no question. And it raises my bar. Mm. Like it makes mm. me play better because I'm like, okay, now I'm standing next to this guy <laughs> and it's flying Well, and we just started. So there's no, you know, I'm not like looking around thinking, oh, let me play my part right. It's more like, okay. Let me join this moment and jump on board the train. You know, for me, that's come from uh, me being in some bands under some amazing leaders that mm. that did that and uh, made you feel like your contribution was uh, on equal weight with theirs or whatever. You know, uh, playing with the Mel Lewis band, man, when you played, it was like your band. He made it feel like this is your band now, and I'm playing for you. But le but yet, you know, you're playing within that whole. Thing energy and feeling yeah and i've been in quite a few bands where that was happening mm -hmm. so that really gave me com a lot of confidence and gave me maybe that uh insight on on just that approach uh and it just kind of happens i don't really think about it i just but once well, once, you, once we hit we yeah, hit you know? yeah i mean what you just said really described one of my favorite bands of all time the paul motion trio with you and Bill mm -hmm. Frizzell. And when I used to go hear you play all the time, uh, when I was first in New York, it did feel like, okay, there's three leaders up there. Even though it was clear it was Paul's band and it was his music and his vision, mm -hmm. but you guys had so much freedom and presence. Oh yeah, we and were all you on. being the only horn, it was kind of like everybody had a really powerful role. Yeah, and with no bass. Yeah, well, just like guitar, saxophone, and and well, drums. Bill playing with that feeling of transparency and that real openness and mm -hmm. and uh, flexibility. And, and and Paul was one of the most consistent, amazing musicians hmm. in music, man. And every second with him was like uh, a very spiritual journey in each piece, man. And and sometimes we would play three and four ballads in a row, mm -hmm. and uh, like he'd call the third one, and I I don't I'd say I'd almost question it in my head, like, wow, should, how are we gonna? That would make me approach that third ballad with another kind of attitude and energy yeah. and idea. Yeah. Then he'd call another one after that because he was yeah. digging the way it was flowing. Well, that's spirit. Uh, that's what we were talking yeah, about bringing know. the spirituality to it. You know, so he, each he piece felt of, each piece of music to create its own atmosphere, and um, to be in that group and and through all those years, I know for Bill and myself, it was a springboard into all these things that we've been doing since the early '80s. You know, I I, yeah. I could speak definitely for myself, but I feel that in Bill's music too. You know, and all his different groups, and every yeah. every time he plays, mm -hmm. uh, is like uh, I don't know, something so magical in it. You yeah. know, yeah. beyond the notes and the song or whatever it is. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard to define that, but that's uh, that's some that's some beautiful magical place that we, that we have in this music, and I think we capture that together in oh, this well. band Sound thank you as well thank you and thanks for doing this conversation oh, joe lovano thanks for it's asking been amazing me, beautiful man. <laughs> yeah really good to talk so uh hope you enjoyed this episode and uh catch joe all around the world wherever you live or uh on the radio waves and uh we'll go out with some more music thanks so much thank you 